Let's hear God's word, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Amen. As we begin a new series from the book of Ephesians, of course, you might be expecting a word or two of introduction about the overall letter. For the bulk of that, I want to refer you back to when we did an overview of the book of Ephesians in our Sunday school, and you should be able to find that on YouTube if you if somehow you've managed to forget the several weeks that have intervened since that point in time. But of course, when the Ephesians got this letter, they wouldn't have had a few words of introduction. They would have jumped right in. They would have heard Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and that would have been their introduction to the letter the first time they heard it. So I think we can join them and jump in this morning, noticing what Paul is doing here. He's following the convention of greeting, the convention of addressing your letter, so to speak, that was contemporary for his time, that was current then. He identifies himself, he identifies his readers, and he expresses a good wish for them in the first two verses. But of course, Paul is Paul. He's going to use the polite language but he's going to pack them with Christian meaning. He's going to have some doctrinal content in there. Paul is already teaching us in these opening words. He tells you who he is. He's Paul, and he'll say more about that a little bit later on, but they were already familiar with him, as are we. But then he tells them what his office is, what his role is. He tells them that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now that explains a couple of things. It explains on the one hand, why is he sending a letter to the church? Why should they receive this letter? Why should they listen to this letter? Well, because Paul is an authorized representative of Christ. He speaks in the name and by the authority of Christ. Christ has called him to not only start new churches, but also to organize the churches that have been started, also to set straight what is amiss. Paul, as an apostle, is part of the foundation of the church. And so Paul's apostolic office cannot be repeated just like you don't go on laying the foundation when you're building a house over and over and over. You lay the foundation and you move on. With the apostles, with their work in explaining the reality of Christ, the foundation of the church was laid with their practical work as well in organizing the church. And now we build upon that foundation. But in reference to the fact that we have an installation of officers as part of our service this morning, we should maybe note that there is nonetheless a connection. Jesus Christ, by the will of God, appointed officers for the church, 
Now, he appointed Paul to that specific office, which is the apostolate, and that's unique, that's unrepeatable. But of course, Christ also instituted other offices. He instituted the office of pastor. He instituted the office of elder. He instituted the office of deacon. And this morning, we have an installation of elders and deacons. That is not just because we think it's a good idea. That's because it's the will of God. It's the institution of Christ. And as Paul could say that he was an apostle by the will of God, in other words, it wasn't his idea. He didn't come up with it. It wasn't even just something that the church in general thought, you know, this seems like a good idea. They were following the call of Christ. So with our officers as well, we ask if people are willing to serve because when God calls a man to office, that's one of the things that God bestows. He bestows a readiness, a willingness to carry out the duties of that office. The consistory evaluates those who are willing to serve to determine whether they meet the requirements that are laid down in Scripture because those whom God calls, he also equips, he also qualifies to exercise the duties of that office. And then finally, they are proposed to the congregation and the congregation votes, not because this is a democracy. It's not a democracy. Jesus Christ is king. But because those whom God has called will be acceptable to the congregation where they're called to serve. Those who live with them week by week, those who know them will recognize God's calling in their life or they will not. And if the congregation doesn't recognize God's calling in the life of a particular man to that particular office for that particular congregation, then that man is not called to that office in that congregation, at least not at that time. And so those three layers, the willingness, the evaluation of suitability, and the concurrence of the congregation are how we identify those officers who have been called by the will of God. Now, they're not called to be apostles, but they can say, I'm an elder, I'm a deacon by the will of God, as Paul could say here that he was an apostle by the will of God. You notice who's in charge in the church. We're not running things for our own benefit. We're not doing whatever pops into our heads. We are seeking to follow the commands, the order that God has set up in the church of Christ. And part of that appropriate functioning is the nomination, the election, and then as we proceed to do today, the installation of officers so that everybody will know who are their officers, who is responsible for the different elements of care in the church. Now, Paul also says to whom he is writing. He tells you who's doing the writing, Paul, an authorized representative of Jesus Christ. But to whom is he writing? Well, he says to the saints who are in Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, when you read it that way, it might almost sound like he's writing to two groups, but it's all the same group. 
he's describing them in a couple of different ways. He's describing them as saints or as holy ones. He's also describing them as faithful or believers in Christ. So there's not two categories. There's ordinary believers. And then there's the extra special, the ones who have attained to sainthood. No, every believer is a saint and every saint is a believer. There are two different ways of looking at the same people. And you notice that Paul also has another way of looking at the same group of people. He says to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, there's a double reality that's true of these people. They are in Ephesus. They're living in the midst of a pagan city under the Roman Empire that was known for its devotion to the goddess Artemis or Diana, that was also known for its extensive practice of magic. That's where they're living. That's where they're called to serve the Lord. But at the same time that they're in Ephesus, they're in Christ Jesus. Now, those observations actually give us a clue to the structure, the organization of the rest of the letter. Most commentators will divide Ephesians into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 3, and there's chapters 4 through 6. In chapters 1 through 3, as Sinclair Ferguson points out, there's only one command, that's in chapter 2, verse 11, and that command is remember. Now, then you come to chapters 4 through 6, and there's dozens of commands. Well, that's quite a difference then, isn't there? So he points out that those two divisions of the letter correspond to the different ways of describing this same group of people, this same church. Chapters 1 through 3 tell you who you are in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 tell you how to live in Ephesus, given that you are in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3 tell you how you are holy in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 tell you how to live out a faithful, believing life in a world that isn't holy, in a world where you stand in contrast to the majority of the people around you. So already, Paul has taught us some important things. He's taught us about church office. He's taught us about our privileges. He's taught us that our privilege will lead us to lead different lives. For us, not in Ephesus, in Shafter, Bakersfield, Kern County. But we have these same privileges. We are in this same line. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a saint. And therefore... You're in Christ, and therefore, your life is going to look different. Now, we'll hold most of the life looking different until we get to chapters 4 through 6, because that's what Paul does. But we'll make some applications, of course, along the way. A quick application here, just sort of in passing, but notice this. Paul is writing to Christians. Now, you know a lot of Christians, and you know they're kind of a mixed bag. They have their ups and downs. They have their good days and their bad days. They have their weaknesses. They have their deficiencies. Not all of us are completely perfect in everything we do and say. In fact, none of us are. 
Some of us might make mistakes in one direction. Some of us might make mistakes in another direction. Some of us may find we frequently have occasion to apologize for conduct unbecoming a Christian. The people in Ephesus were not really different from that. Paul doesn't write to them and call them saints because they were so much better than we are. Paul wrote to them and called them saints because they were in Christ. He saw other believers, and he was aware of their problems. He was aware of their flaws. But how did he see them? He saw them as holy in Christ. Well, how do you see the people around you? Is the number one thing that you notice in the people who are gathered here this morning, their deficiencies, their flaws, all the way they come short, the way they aggravate you and get on your nerves, or the way they don't serve God as you would serve God? Is that the number one thing that comes to mind? Well, if so, let's learn from Paul. Let's change our outlook. Let's look around us and see saints shining with the light of God's holiness. Let's see faithful ones who are clinging to Christ through all their ups and downs. Let's see those who are joined to Christ, who are precious to him, who are valuable in his eyes. And let's engage with them accordingly. Let's treat them as saints and faithful in Christ. Well, we're still not done with Paul's greeting. He's said who he is. He's said who they are. Who's the author? Who are the recipients? And now there's another standard part of writing a letter in the ancient world. You say something nice. You might say rejoice, or you might say greetings. Well, Paul uses a word that sounds like the word they used, but it's not exactly the same word. Paul uses the word grace. And then, being of good Hebrew background, he adds the word peace. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that verse is probably worth the sermon all by itself. What is grace? Well, there's several ways to describe it. You can describe it as God's unmerited kindness. In other words, you haven't deserved it. You haven't earned it. But God has given it anyway. A nice way to remember grace is that it's God's favor towards the guilty. That way you have a little bit of alliteration, right? Grace and guilty. So God's favor towards the guilty means you don't deserve it. You've earned the opposite of grace. And yet God is gracious anyway. It means that how God treats you is not based on what you've done. How God treats you is based on who he is. God sovereignly, freely says, I'm going to be kind to people who do not deserve it. I'm going to have mercy on people who have no claim on me. And in grace, then, God bestows blessing after blessing after blessing. But this tells you the root, the source, the fountain of everything is the grace of God. Not something you did, but who God is. What God has decided. 
And so God always takes the initiative with us way back in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve fell into sin. They heard God's voice and they hid, but God didn't let them hide. He hunted them down. He sought them out. He dealt with them about their sin, but he also provided for them the promise of a redeemer and immediate provision in the short term as well. And that's the pattern throughout the whole of the Bible. Because God is gracious, he comes seeking sinners through the gospel. He comes to those who have deserved his everlasting rejection, and he brings them peace. So grace comes first. Grace is the foundation. Grace is God being good to us, though we don't deserve it. And he gives the blessing of peace. Now, that's such a wonderful, such a full, such a round word, if I can put it in those terms. Because of sin, you're not in peace. You're at war with yourself. There's conflicts. There's mutually incompatible desires. You sometimes want to do something and find that you can't. A lot of times you wind up doing things and then regretting them. And that war within is a result of your alienation from God. You're not right. You're not properly ordered. Everything is not in harmony and at peace inside of you because your relationship with God has been broken, has been messed up by sin. So when God comes in peace, instead of being our enemy, he becomes our friend. And instead of us viewing him with suspicion and resentment, he changes our hearts. He open our, opens our eyes so that we're able to see him truly as a good God, as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the one who is gracious to us. Well, when peace with God becomes promotes peace within, then it's also far more possible to be at peace with other people. When we're alienated from God, when we're hateful and hating one another, our relationships with others tend to be marked by a great deal of conflict, don't they? Sometimes people have beefs with us. Sometimes we're the ones guilty of provoking some drama. But there can be a lot. Of conflict. Now, it's not that Christians never experience conflict, even among themselves. We do, and we do too much. But the conditions for peace, the potential for peace, is there in that we're safe and secure in God's grace, in that we've been reconciled to God, in that God is at work in us, and so we can be forgiving. We can be patient. We can be long-suffering. We can be honest. We can acknowledge our faults. We can bend over backwards to keep or to restore peace with other people when that's what needs to happen. Grace and peace come from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice how Paul associates them together here? God and Christ together bring us grace and peace. Now, he's going to be a little bit more specific about that in what's still to come. But just notice how he joins them together here. 
Now, moving on then. Well, before we move on, I guess I should say. You know, you hear these words every week in the greeting that God brings to us in worship. Why? Why do we repeat ourselves week after week with a beautiful phrase, whether it's from Ephesians 1 verse 1 or Romans 1 7 or, you know, wherever it comes from, it's, it's the exact same language. Why do we do that? Why do we have that element in our worship service? Well, this is what we always need. We're never gotten over the need for God's grace, and we could definitely use a fresh supply of peace, couldn't we? So God continues to bestow grace and peace upon us. God continues to treat us in this way of grace where we have not deserved it, and yet he gives us peace anyway. And so at the beginning of every worship service, there's a reminder of what do we truly need, grace and peace, but there's also a reminder of who gives that to us, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can move on to verse 3. Usually at this point in the letter, Paul would say, I give thanks for you. But here he keeps the thanksgiving until later. It doesn't come up until verse 15. He interrupts the normal flow to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What is this? It is worship. Paul is leading the Ephesians in worship. We bless God when we recognize that God is blessed, that he is the all-blessed one, and that every blessing comes from him, like we sing in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We can't make God more blessed. So when we bless God, what we're really doing is we're acknowledging, we're recognizing the blessedness he already possesses. And why does Paul worship God in this way? Because of what he's done. He's blessed us. Now, when God blesses us, that means he's giving us something. He's doing something for us. What has he done? Well, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. I want you to notice the fullness, the completeness of that. Every spiritual blessing. Now, Paul's going to go on to list some of those blessings, being chosen, being predestined, being adopted, being redeemed, being forgiven, being having revelation made to us, and other things that will come up over the course of the letter. But you know, we could read all the way through the end of Ephesians and still not say, well, that was every spiritual blessing. There's a lot mentioned in Ephesians. But I don't think it's everyone. But every spiritual blessing has been given to us by God already in Christ. There's not one missing. And this is one reason why there aren't really different classes of Christians, because God has given the same thing to everybody. If you're a Christian at all, you have every spiritual blessing. Well, how could somebody else then have more? Every is every. If you've got it all, what's missing? Now, he's not talking about the ordinary, the temporary blessings, blessings that God shares with human beings, even with those who aren't saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. 
It's true, God also gives us those things. But what he has in mind here are the spiritual blessings. The blessings that you could say are in heaven, in the heavenly places. So those are the things that we need to be restored to a right relationship with God, to serve God faithfully in this world, to seek and to enjoy God, to glorify him. That's what's in mind here. And all of those blessings, all of those heavenly spiritual blessings come to us from God through Christ. Do you notice how he keeps repeating those names? In verse 1, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The saints and faithful are in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace come to them from God, the Fa- our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ. You notice what he keeps doing there. He puts God, the Father, and Christ together. And the consistent representation, the consistent thing he keeps saying is that all these blessings come from God, but they reach us through Christ, or maybe even more precisely, they reach us in Christ. God is the source, and Christ is the channel, if you want to put it that way. Or God bestows those things to Christ, on Christ, and therefore everybody who's in Christ gets them too. That's another way to look at it. You also notice that he calls God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple of ways to think about that. Inasmuch as Jesus Christ is our older brother, as he's truly human with a rational soul and a physical body, inasmuch as he's every bit as human as we are, of course we can speak about God as also being his God. We're like Christ in that we have the same God. Now, we also understand, of course, that in light of his divine nature, Jesus Christ is that God whom we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, but they have one divine nature. So when you hear the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, on the one hand, it is a reminder that Jesus Christ is truly human. He is a human worshiper and follower of God as we are. He's the first, he's the leader, he's the forerunner, as Hebrews calls him, but we're brought into union with him in that regard also. But then we can also remember that God is his father naturally. The father eternally begets the son. Now, we're also called sons or children of God, but we're children of God by grace, through adoption, not naturally and eternally through generation. So there's a similarity, but there's also a contrast. As we talk about this indescribable glory of who God is and of who Jesus is, there may be much that we don't understand, but a couple of things should be obvious. One is, what an amazing God. What a lovely Savior we have. The second is, look at what they do for us. Grace and peace 
Every spiritual blessing, including that fundamental blessing that we're in Christ, that we're joined to him. Well, what's the application of that? I think Paul has already taught us that by his example. What is the first thing, the first response we should make to hearing about how the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. What's our response? What's our reaction to that? Well, to join with Paul in blessing God, in recognizing his blessedness, in worshiping him. Dearly beloved saints in Christ, the first mark of a Christian is to worship God. That is the most practical application of the truth. Let's join then and bless God together. Amen.